We have been talking a lot about drug policy in this province, decriminalization, what's working, what isn't working. We also heard from our provincial health officer as well as other officials earlier this week talking about safe supply and the potential for expanding safe supply in this province. Some of the concerns there as well are safe supply drugs being sold or being traded for other drugs, other more effective drugs in some cases. And what else could potentially help ease the overdose crisis? Well, my next guest is here to talk more about decriminalization and why that is not working on its own. Samuel Tobias is a doctoral student at UBC's School of Population and Public Health, also research assistant at BC's Centre on Substance Use. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. When we look at decriminalization and the policy that we've seen in Vancouver, in BC, what do you think some of the issues are with that policy? Well, decriminalization itself doesn't necessarily go far enough to tackle what we're dealing with in British Columbia right now, which is an unmitigated overdose crisis. Um, So when we think of decriminalization, we're thinking of decriminalizing substance use um, which you know reinforces the stigma um, associated with using drugs, but it's important not to conflate the decriminalization of drugs for personal use with interventions or approaches that tackle the incredibly high number of overdose deaths we're dealing with each month in our province. Do you think we've done that then? Because there was a lot of fanfare when the decriminalization policy was announced and the fact that we're talking about Vancouver and BC being a leader in that case. But if it's not coupled with other things such as safe supply or treatment and other pillars, if it doesn't have those other supports, how is it supposed to work? Well, it, 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 yeah, it's, it, it works by removing the um, criminal... Um, the criminal aspect to drug use. So that's important because criminalizing people who use drugs discourages them from, um, you know, reaching out for help when they need it, for seeking treatment or other supports that um, they may need. And removing the criminal records associated with personal possession can also support people in their in their hope for recovery from addiction. But um, right now in British Columbia, we're dealing with a toxic drug supply that's, um, you know, filled with uh, adulterants like xylazine, benzodiazepines, really unpredictable fentanyl concentrations, and that's what's driving the overdose crisis. So the criminal aspect of it is really not at the personal um, possession and personal consumption level. It's at the higher organized crime level that's really responsible for this incredibly unpredictable supply. Right, so decriminalizing it, uh, and if the goal there is to take the stigma away, to take that part out, but like you're saying, if it's not uh, looking at a safer supply, or if it is still the drugs on the streets that are killing people, then it doesn't make a lot of difference, does it? That, uh, sure, you don't have to fear criminal prosecution, but you could still take something that you don't know what's in it completely, and that could lead to an overdose. Yeah, exactly, and that's what's driving the overdose crisis. So decriminalization on its face does nothing to address the toxic drug supply that we're dealing with. The policy must also come with, um, you know, further policy changes that create a safe regulated drug supply for people. Um, British Columbia should be investing in treatment and recovery options for people and and expanded harm reduction services, particularly in, in rural and remote communities in the province. What do you think as well of uh, what we've been hearing about, and this has happened, I think, since decriminalization and what we've seen kind of trending or patterns throughout the pandemic in that people 
are seeking out stronger drugs. They're seeking out uh, more potent fentanyl or the the, the increased, uh, the kind of uh, higher drugs that would have more impact. Maybe if somebody, uh, and we're hearing this as well, people on safe supply in some cases could potentially be selling that to, to go and get something that is stronger. Again, how does that kind of play into under that umbrella of decriminalization? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it plays into the umbrella of decriminalization. I think we're conflating two things. But the the potent drug supply has existed, you know, since before the COVID pandemic, before decriminalization came into play. The, the drug supply is a dynamic um, supply. We've seen um, through my research that fentanyl concentrations in the supply fluctuate. They go up and down over time. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and, um, you know, there were social distancing measures and um, border control measures came into play. We saw a huge supply shock to the system that sent the drug supply into a little bit of a tailspin. Um, drugs became even more unpredictable. Fentanyl concentrations got thrown way um, out of whack from what they had been dealing with for certain years. So in that sense, the drug supply has become more potent and more toxic. So the problem is people who rely on the unregulated drug supply have I've learned to deal with that and um, people's tolerances have gone up and a lot of the safe supply options that are available, you know, hydromorphone prescriptions, they just don't offer the, the potency and enough for people to, you know, feel well when their withdrawal hits. And so, you know, diversion is one of the ways that people are dealing with that is by um, selling what they're able to receive from the prescription and then um, reverting back to the unregulated drug supply to feel well again. And I don't think that comes as a huge surprise to anyone when when it's explained that way and you look at the motivation on why somebody would do that. Uh, a huge difference in response when we look at what's happening in BC and even earlier this week with that talk of expanding safe supply and, and adding to the move to decriminalize. If we look to our neighbours in Alberta going down the path of forced treatment, which is always controversial, you mentioned, though, some of the other things that are needed to add to decriminalization to help with uh, trying to stop uh, this uh, continued crisis where we're seeing six people die every day. Uh, what else do you think uh, does the, the research tell us that we should be doing? Well, the research tells us that we shouldn't be um, forcing people into treatment because treatment really only works if somebody wants it, right? And what we're what is a big concern for us is that someone who is maybe, you know, put into a jail cell or put into a treatment facility um, where they're not able to access any drugs at all, their tolerance is going to go way down. And then as soon as they get out um, or are released back it, into public life and their tolerance has dropped and they access the unregulated drug supply again, which hasn't changed, um, they're not going to realize that they're not going to be able to handle what they could before they um, went into treatment. And then especially if they are trying to hide the fact that they're using and they use alone, that can lead to really you know, dire consequences, fatal consequences for someone. And that's something we see and hear anecdotally all the time. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have known someone um, or, you know, families and friends who've, who've lost someone that way, where they, they receive treatment and then they get released or they go back to uh, public life and they don't realize that their tolerance is not what it used to be and they, and they end up unfortunately dying. 
So is there anything else you think or that you've been researching and look at that we could be doing? Is it that safe supply is expanded and people at least then stay alive and have a chance at going to treatment when they want to? Or is there anything else that we're kind of missing? You know, that's exactly the point of safe supply. Safe supply is meant to provide people an alternative to the toxic, unregulated drug supply in order to um, stay alive and then whenever someone is ready to seek treatment, they're more, it's, it's there for them. And that's why that we need to be investing in treatment and recovery options um, that are affordable uh, in, in the province. And so whenever someone is ready, they can seek treatment that way. Um, and the other thing about safe supply is it's stabilizing for people's life. And, you know, you're able to um, get back onto a, a schedule that works for you. You can hold employment. So it, it, there's a lot of benefits of safe supply on top of just staying alive and, and avoiding going to treatment. It, it's a very stabilizing factor for people. And, and different methods of safe supply work for different people. So it's really important to have options, whether that's injectable safe supply that's overseen by a nurse in a clinic or options that you can take home you know, like pills that uh, work for you and you can um, work them into your day, whatever is best. All right. Samuel Tobias, thanks so much for your time for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill.